Here we go. The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Oh, it feels like it's been ages. I mean, I guess it's only been three weeks, but my British co-host is making his triumphant return. 404, missing link. Where have you been, man? Uh, well, you know, you got to take a holiday every now and again. So Agreed. I've been away uh, seeing family in Canada. And uh, in, uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, West Coast Canada, British Columbia? That's right. Beautiful British Columbia, as they like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've never been. Uh, strangely it's, enough, it's stunning. I could, uh, I could hit it with a baseball from where I live, but, uh, never, never made the journey. Always thought it was a great idea. There's uh, my, uh, parents own a timeshare, which they have offered to me on, on several occasions. And it's, it's one of the big, uh, property ownership firms or, or groups or, you know, what, however you would refer to it. And they have locations everywhere. And one of the newest and, uh, most interesting in my opinion is in Vancouver, British Columbia, but I've never been where, uh, y- you mentioned that you, you spent some time on the coast. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, I was staying on Vancouver Island with family. So, Beautiful. you know, my dad's side, it's all, it's all Canadian. So, um, then I spent some time on a place called Denman Island, which is like this really hippie small island. They have a thing called a free store there, which is like a charity store, but you can take anything you like for free. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> so that, that's a bit of a weird one. Um, I get the impression that great, there's, you know? I, I get the impression that there's probably not much there that you would like to take. No, it, there really is stuff like there's like TVs and stereos and books and there's all kinds of stuff that people donate there. That's interesting. So, most, m- most stores now, I think at least in the major American cities are being treated like free stores. That's not a segue. It's just, it's just <laughs> something that's, that's been in, in the news lately. Yeah. You're treating, uh, the free store as you know, it's a, it's a point of view. <laughs> right. Right. It's a doctrine. It's a yeah, that's it. It's a perspective. <laughs> You pay money and I, I don't. Well, everything, I mean, all of these uh, retail outlets in, you know, in New York and California, they, they make, they keep making statements. There was, uh, I, I forget the name of the store, but there was a retail location that, that took out a full page ad in the newspaper basically calling out the leadership in California saying that we're not, it's going to be, uh, uh, retail deserts is the term I've heard a lot of, uh, media wow. personalities using to describe these, these blue cities because it's, it's just endless. They're, they're not even trying to cover their faces anymore. They come in, they fill up their bags and they just walk away. It's not a very profitable business model. No. And, uh, what do the police say about this? 
Well, they've been, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, back sort of COVID era, you know, towards, towards the end of 2020, I think it was the, uh, the leftist liberal Democrat leadership started rolling out the, you know, the defund the police initiative. So that's been, and that's been going on for three years now. So policing in general and, and the people in law enforcement have just been demoralized to the point where I saw an article yesterday that said an, an entire police force in, in a rural city in uh, Minnesota all resigned, everyone, police chief included. And there, I mean, there was no one interested. There, there were no resumes or applications to draw on. So there's no, now this, this town of Minnesota is going, well, I guess we're going to have to start exploring other options when all the existing police force wanted was a raise because they were only being paid $22 an hour to enforce the law in this. I mean, granted small town, 1300 people, but still they've all resigned now. And yeah, you, you could make that money where you don't have to have the responsibility of being a police officer. Like, right. I mean, I just, yeah. I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine trying to do police work, especially in a liberal place like Minnesota, where these defund the police initiatives have been rolled out and, and not just defund the police, but also when you're under constant scrutiny, you have to wear a body camera and Anytime anything goes wrong, a la George Floyd, you are, you know, really crucified in, in the public eye for anything that you may have done wrong. But it's it's all just the pro-crime, anti-police narrative that's been pushed all across the country and in Canada, too, I, I assume. What was the I mean, it sounds like you were staying in in some pretty nice places as you do when you're on vacation. Yeah, you, you know, somewhere like Vancouver Island. I mean, you know, what's funny, because we were talking about the safe supply thing, right? And I was asking my family about it. Um, you know, and they even have the opinion that uh, it's, a, it's a good thing. Um, you know, I didn't press or anything like that. Um, but uh, it was, and I actually saw it in, in person. I saw it in real life. Oh, nice. Which is always the best way. To see that, what did you um, get? I came, <laughs> so <laughs> so I didn't make any purchases of my own. Um, of course not. I didn't see any purchases of my own, but I saw um, outside of a multi-story car park. I came out, and there was a bunch of people that uh, you would say were drug addicts in the nice way, and there was a guy just hanging out right next to some police, just filling up his crack pipe. <laughs> you know, as you do. It was a very yeah, it was very, um, it was very strange, you know, and I had to tell my girlfriend, like, hey, look, be careful of your feet, because she was wearing sandals, and uh, I was like, you know, there could be glass or needles or something around, you know, just, uh, so yeah, it was one of those things where you talk about it, and you hear about this, but then you see it in real life, like someone actually is doing meth out in the open, and you know, when we came back, you know, they were like crumpled over in a heap, completely <laughs> high off their tits, right? So it is kind of surreal seeing that in real life. But what's funny about it is you go down the street and you're in sunny Victoria, which is one of the most beautiful uh, cities 
in British Columbia. So it is very strange to see that in the beautiful setting. Um, Very odd. But on the whole, where I was staying was very idyllic. Um, It's not very built up other than places like Victoria and Nanaimo, which has all the sort of drug addicts staying around there because they're urban areas. But out in places like, you know, like Souk or Machosin or up by Port Renfrew or something, these are very small places that are hard to get to. Um, There's not much public transport on Vancouver Island other than buses, and even those buses are not very good. So it's hard for them to get around other than the major urban areas which the ferry goes to. And the reason they stay there is because the weather's so good all year round, so um, it's it's easy to to stay out kind of like in the elements. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's the more uh, the more traffic, I guess, or or maybe that's not the right way to say it. The the greater the population, the more uh, I think opportunity for homeless people to capitalize on their their homelessness <laughs> because i mean even in my area which is i think i mean maybe 6000 7000 people there's a surprising number of homeless people and they've got their signs and they you know stand outside of the the parking lots getting handouts if there's pe- if there's enough people to be able to survive begging it's kind of a harsh way to put it, but maybe that's just mm. the uh, the cult the the you know parlance of the culture has changed. Then you'll have more homeless people. It's like you know they say, and this is a a cold way to put it, but you know, don't feed the strays because they you know they'll never they'll never leave. But in terms of of drug use and stuff like that, I'm kind of I don't know. I'm kind of hippy dippy on the subject. Like, Hey, you know, do your, do your thing, have your fun to each his own until it starts. But I mean, the problem with that is people get carried away. They use too much and then it consumes them because it's, it's all they want to do. I mean, and, and it can be any substance. It's more of the, the person than the drug itself. In my opinion, it's yeah and it's it's the things that that that's around that as well you know j- just like what i talked about you know if someone's uh doing meth or heroin or something like that and then leaves their broken glass or needles around or something then that becomes uh that that's not just affecting the person that's doing it you know if someone steps on that and it hurts themselves and they get infected with something yeah now you're affecting someone else so i think it's yeah it's it's a very hard line to tread between like allowing someone to do whatever they want if it affects them you know fuck them right <laughs> uh but at the same time limiting uh that person's ability to infringe on the rights of someone else just trying to walk around in a public space which they pay taxes for and then it becomes Oh, I've I've spent all of my money on this drug and now I need more and I don't have any money. So if I'm homeless, jobless and drug addicted, there's only so many places that I can get money and then it becomes, well, I'm going to now I'm going to come into your house and see what you have, see how much money you have, see if you have anything that I can 
sell to get these drugs and it becomes this whole you know now now i have more drugs so i'm content to continue to be homeless and jobless and the cycle perpetuates until we have you know places like san francisco and new york city where i mean that's that's the bulk of the homeless problem drug addicts and the mentally ill you know gavin newsom who who you know wants to be president will you know go in front of the media and say oh it's the mother of three who's down on her luck that can't you know she, that that person may be homeless for a, a a couple of weeks before they you know lean on their their support system you know with with their their family because that that's the thing about people that are homeless and drug addicted that's that's where they want to be they don't want to go to a shelter because they can't do their drugs there so they would rather live on the street because they've burned all of the bridges that they had with their family members that were willing to let them you know come crash on the couch until you know there's money missing off of the dresser and you know those uh faberge eggs have disappeared you know have disappeared because they're yeah you know they they've been hawked for drug money but this this safe supply initiative that that is is looking to provide drugs to drug addicted people it, it's one of those ideas that's born out of uh you know benevolence they they want to help people they want to keep people safe and some there there is some nefarity that introduces itself along the line because with big corporations comes a sort of lack of integrity and you know uh, this soulless effort to just make more and more money increase profits over and over no matter the cost so it turns into exacerbating the drug problem versus actually helping it yeah i think that's the way you know my family uh you know which are just regular canadian citizens right um law-abiding tax-paying uh voting citizens right and they, they see it as as that way the way that it's been sold to them um is out of a place well you know maybe this will be a way for them to do it in a certain place and then they can get help and stuff like that but you know from the outside looking in it, it seems more like a gamble and they even know that because they're only doing the pilot program for two years and no one else has ever done anything like this so i feel like they're i feel like they are gambling in a, in a very large way um and i feel like the risk to the general public definitely does outweigh um the potential benefits uh, that that could come from this program, especially since I think by their own reports, the the level of conversion they'll probably get out of drug addicted people is probably going to be very low compared to, uh, you know, it, I don't I don't imagine it will be that much better compared to other programs that have been put in place, uh, which already encourage people to get help and to stop taking drugs. Um, 
And that's, those yeah, are the like kind of things, yeah. th- those are the kind of things that need to like piggyback on this, you know, safe supply initiative. Like w- we went into, uh, in, in that safe supply episode, there has to be an initiative to help people kick the drugs, not just continue to have a supply, but we know, yeah. it, you know, big healthcare wants to keep profiting off of their products. So when you were talking about creating a safe supply initiative, well, now you have to take the advice of many different elements because, okay, you have, you have to get the drugs from, from somewhere. You have to get law enforcement on board. And each of these elements is going to have their own opinion on how this should be done. So then you have to take the integrity of the people into account. Do you, you trust these people that are affecting this policy? Should you trust them? Um, when I see how this safe supply is being rolled out and we're talking about, okay, go to the doctor and get your safe supply card and then you can buy these drugs from these vending machines. Okay. But then what, like who is monitoring how much, you know, are, are the vending machines being completely wiped out? <laughs> you know, it's, and, and I mean, that's another thing, like who's, who's monitoring the, I mean, not only the effectiveness, but also like, are they just cracking open the vending machines and taking all of the drugs out? Like, yeah, there's always that risk as, as well. Like one of my major concerns with it would be, you know, people that would get other people to get the drugs from the vending machine. Cause I, I think the way it works is you're only allowed a certain amount. You have to get a card for it, almost like a debit card that you get assigned. And so you, someone might force other people that are hooked on drugs to go to the vending machine and get all the drugs that they can get for that day and then sell them, not use them, right. but start selling them themselves on the side, you know, for other things. So they, they could exacerbate a black market from that. Uh, I'm not sure there's any programs for monitoring that behavior, um, which seems like, I don't know, but that that's what happens when, you hand out drugs like that, you know, the bad shit is going to happen. People are going to sell them and move them and trade them for other things. Um, and it's like part of the human condition. Yeah. Like they're, they're some people, not all people, but some people are always going to try to find a way to exploit everything, you know, yeah. like, like the free store, you know, I, it, it's almost like the, uh, the the penny dish on the the counter at the the convenience store you know oh i'm i'm a couple pennies short but there's a couple pennies in there let's you know here we'll just pull a couple of pennies out there there's there's people that only take the pennies they never leave the pennies just like at the free shop there's there's people that are always going to take things but never bring anything of their own that's just i mean yeah it it's kind of it's kind of dark and negative and and whatever but that's just how people operate and that's why i'm an anarchist the the, For sure. the I, fewer I, people you have funny, involved uh, the better 
there's a funny story actually because on Demon Island there's there's two free places. There's the free store which is like a charity shop, and then someone else that liked the idea made a free shed, and it's like a typical plastic shed that you buy from Home Depot or Walmart or whatever, and um. It's very similar. There's just stuff in there like workout equipment or cups or cutlery or whatever you want. And they had to close it for a bit because someone went there and took the shelving out of the shed, <laughs> not re- not realizing that the shelving wasn't for free. And the guy that was running it was really down and everything. And that person brought the shelving back. Oh, so they nice. Brought the shelving back. And then, uh, so when I went, uh, to the free share, the free share is back, you know, in order and everything. I have a really good photo of my girlfriend with a mug that she had found there that she liked. Um, so yeah, I thought that was so funny though, because like Demon Island doesn't even have like a police department, you know, they're probably a thousand people living on that island, they have no f- police, there's no crime. Uh, but it's very hippie stuff. I think you'd like it to be fair, I think you'd really enjoy it. It sounds great, it's almost like. Yeah, it's like a libertarian stream. You can you can pretty much just live and not be bothered by anyone. There was a guy that built a tiny home on top of a uh, a trailer frame, and he was just like, "Yeah, I live here, and if they don't want me, I'll go live somewhere else. I'll just hook it up to a truck and live somewhere else on someone else's land." It's like sounded ideal. There's completely a path for us. For I mean, by us, I mean everyone in in the world. There exists a path where we can all live that way. Unfortunately, course, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, realistically, it would be like, it would be hundreds of years to reverse sort of the dependency that we have on, on just big governments to, to solve all of the problems. The Department of Education, which many people believe shouldn't exist has to be i mean basically needs to be abolished but there's i mean there there is a path there is a way we can we can educate people to just be good stewards and yeah. you know not go into the free shop and take everything for themselves take only take only what they need like all of these forms of government capitalism communism they can all work magnificently depending on who is running them and who is participating in them. Like it's, it's really interesting. The sort of the initiative to destroy the family, the the traditional family that exists. Mm. I mean, it's, it's making its way into American culture and maybe British culture too. this focus on, I mean, really it's just, it's, it's the focus on the self, you know, don't don't sacrifice anything uh uh, do whatever you want live your best life those things all sound really good they do they sound amazing except for you have to know how to do it correctly and if you don't if, if if there's no emphasis on the family then there's no i mean what's your what's your life purpose and it's interesting that this communist Marxist. I mean, I have my own conspiracy theories on what's actually going on, 
But the one place that communism actually works reliably is in the family. You know, yeah, actually, I, you're right. Ideally, there's the, you know, the breadwinner, one, one person, one half of the couple looks after the kids in the home. The other half goes out and earns the money and it's hunky dory. That's the way it's supposed to work. You know, in, in theory, that's whatever, that's the old way. That's the, the old culture. Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right because I just, uh, read and finished a book while I was away in Canada called Voices from Chernobyl. And it was written by uh, a Russian lady called Svetlana Alexievich. And it's basically a collection of monologues from interviews she did in the 80s after the Chernobyl uh, explosion. But that's not really relevant to what is talked about here. But what was really interesting to see is that every conversation they had always had the same setup, the same family setup, where there'd be a guy... Uh, the husband who would work in the factory or work as a fireman or do all the work. And there'd be the lady that worked at home and they really enjoyed this way. And when they had to be picked up and moved away because everything was irradiated for them, it was just insane. And all the old grandmas that had lived like that, they couldn't, you know, they had lived like that the whole lives. And for them to be uprooted and moved. And it feels almost like in the Western world, it's, it, 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 they feel, I feel like at some point it'll go the other way where we will have to be like, hey, look, at some point we're going to have to start the family thing back up again. And that's going to feel like their version of this sort of like evacuation from uh, the way they live their lives. They'll have to, they'll have to start being a family person. And uh, so, yeah, actually, I really recommend that book if you want to learn something about. Uh, Chernobyl from the horse's mouth of the people that actually went through it and it was really interesting to see as you say in a communist society the family values and the emphasis put on family um, is actually of, gr of the one of the greatest concerns um, uh, from the government well and when you when you love your family you love your partner you love your children you can make those sort of self-sacrificing decisions that ultimately strengthen your family and, and strengthen your position in, in life, not, not in, in sort of a hierarchical way, but just make your family stronger. And it's interesting that the, the impression is, I, I, I don't think this is really what's going on, at least not in America, but the impression is that the, the state wants to be the, uh, uh, the, the parents, you know, or the, the monarch or patriarch of, of the family. But it's yes. clear that the state isn't operating from a position of, of love and, and benevolence. They're operating from a position of greed and malevolence. And they seem to be mostly concerned with, it's like the, it's like America is a pinata that's been smashed open. And the contents have dumped all over the ground and now our elected leaders and oligarchs 
are just filling their pockets with the contents when what needs to happen is the the hole needs to be repaired and the contents replaced so while everybody claims you know all, and by everyone i mean the conservative media personalities that are you know supposed to be communicating what's happening in the country and the direction we're heading they're all claiming that we are being that it's it's a communist revolution but the only thing that doesn't fit with that is the initiative to destroy the family so what i think is really happening is not actually a communist revolution it's an active destruction because yeah i uh, i actually agree because if if you think about it the movement of women going into the workplace started as sort of like a fringe movement of women after the war um because the war they had to work they had to work at the factories because all the men were fighting right right um and afterwards they were like well we should be able to work we should be able to have a career in this that and the other and and it sort of grew, grew bigger and bigger and bigger out of that and now we're in a position interestingly where women contribute a great deal um to the economy directly through their own work not just through being a mother to to the economy right and so <laughs> we're in a position now where if we say that women should um not feel uh obliged to go into a career and women should be more family orientated and it should be more traditional uh the government or at least the economy will have to at least accept in the short term that uh the economic output of that country will go down because it is a significant loss we are losing people that could be in a factory in amazon doing a marketing career doing this that and the other because they'll be becoming a mother so to somewhat i actually do agree with you it's 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 like it's like oh shit We've got to make hay while the sun shines kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, we've got to make as much money as we can right now, because if this thing swings the other way, and that's why I do believe like a lot of government institutions are very supportive of women being in the workforce, because um, I mean, a lot of the Western countries, we have an aging population, right? So they need as many workers as physically possible, um, you know, between the ages of 18 and <laughs> 65 <laughs> uh, to be to be working right and if we and if they decide to create social programs that encourage people to have children rather than work which always always ends up being you know benefit money for children and uh, kindergarten and preschool and all these sort of things it becomes not only a short-term loss in workers but also a short-term you know increase in outgoings in in the tax base so it's actually economically a really difficult situation that we've got ourselves into because we have decided as a society to prioritize economic growth over population growth. Well, and it's interesting because uh, the, these, these companies, they need obviously to have their positions filled, but they also need to have a base of unemployed potential workers because this this allows them it's you know it's it's supply and demand if you're 
wages and your benefits package is such that you never have any open job positions, then I mean, that that would tell the the corporate minded businessman that he needs to decrease wages and sort of uh, make make his jobs less appealing to create maybe a little bit more turnover. And, and while that can be detrimental to the operation of a business, I mean, because what do they say? It's, it's always more expensive to, uh, or, or I don't know about always, but in theory, it's more expensive to hire a new employee than to, you know, keep your existing employee and, and, and maybe just pay them a little bit more. Of course, a company only wants to pay its workers as little as it can get away with paying them. But there, I mean, there is an effort within the government in this country to create unemployment because that's going to actually benefit the economy. It's going to help with inflation. Uh, but you mentioned when we were talking about uh, women entering the workforce uh, during World War II and, and then remaining in the workforce after the war, the idea jumped into my mind that, that women earn less than men traditionally. And I, I know a lot of that in, in the modern age, a lot of that is uh, it's just cultural Marxism. Mm-hmm. But, but I think at one point it was true. So oh, my sort of one of my philosophies is that the minds of of men and women and just human beings in general don't operate really much differently or any differently than they have over the history of humanity you know people think the same way there's there's greedy people there's generous people and it's been that way for the history of of the human race that being said, it stands to reason that there were business owners, CEOs and titans of industry going, hmm, we can justify paying all of these women less money because they're women. And culturally in the 50s, that was justifiable because they're like, oh, yeah, well, they're, you know, they're women. Huh? They're, they're not very good. They're all emotional. They're always, uh, you know, what, what's that, uh, hysterical, which, which actually that, that word came from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the root of it, but you know, hysterectomy where a woman has her, her uterus removed later in life. Oh yes. Yes. And that's, that's where the word hysterical comes from. It is, uh, uh, directly, oh, is that right? yeah, it's directly related to, uh, uh, women and their emotional responses to you know what whatever sort of external stimuli became a it it became a reason to justify you know paying them less keeping them out of the workforce not allowing them to vote etc etc and i wonder what sort of impact the the media had on that sort of shift in in the culture um 
I mean, personally, you know, my position on, on women in the workforce and, you know, women, in, you know, the, the WNBA and women's soccer and, and all of that stuff is that, is that we, yes, women are at a physical disadvantage from men in most cases, but there are things that women can do better than men. And of course, things that men can do better than women. So I don't think uh, general discrepancy in in pay is 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 okay at all. Um, I am. Oh, who was I listening to? Uh, a Dave Chappelle. Oh, good guy. Yeah, I I recently signed up for Netflix again because uh, well because I'm impressionable. <laughs> And my wife really, my, so we were, we were using, uh, her sister's Netflix password and Netflix initially, oh. they, they just said that they were going to start cracking down on, yeah, on people yeah, yeah. sharing passwords. So I've become a victim of, of Netflix's greed. Although I, I really don't consider it. I, I, I mean, it's not, I don't go, Ooh, Netflix, you who horrible bloated company i'm kind of like eh, yeah that makes sense i mean it's how they make money so i bit the bullet and signed back up for uh netflix it's my wife's fault but i'm i'm i mean it's they, there's so much great content on there i mean there's horrible detestable content that that shouldn't be viewed by anyone on there as well which is why i initially canceled my netflix when the uh the cuties movie oh, or, I remember or that. documentary I, thought, I wondered if you were going to say that yeah, yeah that, the cuties one that wasn't oh my God. that wasn't it it was one of the nails in in the coffin the first time around but i so i've been watching a lot of the stand-up comedy specials that they have on there because there's so many and that's one of the things that i can really get into and i was watching a dave Chappelle special and he was talking about uh feminism and he looked up the definition of feminism and it was basically uh, uh, people be that believe that women are equal and, and deserve equal rights under the law. And that was it. And so Dave Chappelle said, I'm, and after I read that definition, I realized I'm a feminist. And I thought, well, hey, I mean, if, if that's the, the true definition of feminism, then, then I'm a feminist too. And I think uh, uh, you're probably a feminist and more people that even realize, just like Dave Chappelle, are, are feminists. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean. But there's people, uh, there, there's people that aren't feminists that are going to pretend like they are feminists to get the cultural benefits that come with being a feminist today. But the problem is feminist doesn't mean that you're uh, uh, militantly anti-man. And that's the kind of thing that we see in the culture. Like it, it's, it's one of the things and, and I haven't seen it, but it's, it's one of the things that is claimed to be uh, uh, overt in, in the new Barbie movie, uh, anti-man, anti-family, anti-pregnancy. And the, I, I don't think when I, when I see those kind of things, I mean, this is one of the labels that was, that was given to the Barbie movie by the, you know, the, the conservative personalities that I listened to is that it was very pro-communist. And I think, well, how is it pro-communist 
if it's just sort of actively destructive to humanity. I I mean I saw the I saw the film and I got a different impression from the film. Um actually I I, I thought because you have to see it right to the end because the end is the bit that saves it in terms of the opinions for for that it has towards men. You see throughout the whole thing Barbie is viewed as a first class citizen, right? And Ken is viewed as very much a second class citizen, right? Someone that only exists because Barbie exists and he has no purpose unless Barbie looks at him or engages with him. And that's kind of true. Um, That's kind of true to uh, the Barbie brand, right? Because Barbie came along first, right? In, in, in the history, we're talking about the real actual toys. It was, it was the Barbie doll. And then yeah, so, Ken came along um, later. Exactly. And, and spoiler alert, you know, whatever. At the end, you know, because they were like, you know, there is no Ken without Barbie and Ken. And Barbie goes, well, you need to learn how to be your own person without your girlfriend. You know, mm. you know, how this Barbie doesn't define you. You need Ken needs to find out who he is on his own. And find out his personality. And I thought that was really good. That is a good message. I thought that was really I thought it was really good. I was like, that's that is that is that should be the message. It shouldn't be you shouldn't have to define yourself based on other people. Women shouldn't have to define themselves based on men. Men shouldn't have to define themselves based on women. They should have to define themselves based on what they're interested in, what they do. You know, there's many people that define themselves based on what they see on TikTok or uh, you know, what other people do. And that was the overall message in the end for Ken, which I thought was a really good message, you know, and there was some stupid shit about, you know, now Ken's can live like uh, women do in the real world and all this stuff. And it's, it's whatever. It's, it's more of a joke um, than I believe it is. Some people saying it's some kind of uh, political message. Um, there are definitely films that have way worse, obvious agenda baiting and political baiting than barbie does i thought actually for a modern movie it was original and it had a lot of production value um and it wasn't my kind of thing but the ending that ken had in the film i thought was perfect uh it was just like okay great so any guy that's going to see that film is going to think okay you know um it's not a complete men bashing situation well, maybe I'll give it a chance then. I mean, it's, I, I would say it's at least Barbie was played by Margot Robbie, you know, a, a white blonde. That's, that's more than they're doing for most of the adaptations of, of any kind of, uh, mm. in any kind of film it, which, I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me. And it, except for the fact that it's, uh, sort of in insincere and it's it, it's it's like an agitation like um yeah you know when they they recast uh like the little mermaid i mean i i don't really understand why people get so annoyed by that and then i realize oh 
it's because people are going to be annoyed by it that they do it to begin with. And they, they, they couch it like this. Oh, we're just trying to be, uh, you know, whatever inclusive and, and, and diversity and, and all of that, which is fine. You know, whatever, like you're, you're making the movie, I'll see it or I won't see it, you know, whatever. But I wonder when, you don't when 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 none of it goes the other direction like like why do you think they aren't remaking movies you know in in the reverse why not cast some some traditionally female characters with male characters like charlie's angels let's remake charlie's angels and we'll cast three men as the angels and, and, and Charlie can be played by Roseanne and it'll just be, it'll be a fun change up. Like, like that's what we're trying to do. Right. I mean, that's when they, when they are, are changing up all of the casting and switching sexes and races. I mean, it's just supposed to be a fun twist to what we're all, you know, traditionally familiar with. You know, I actually would go and see that movie. I'm not going to lie. If they made that. It would cuz it would be awesome. <laughs> I actually would see that. Cuz I mean that When you say Roseanne, do you mean do you mean Roseanne Barr? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah, I would see. That. Oh shit, now I've done it. I kicked a cord and unplugged a thing and There. <laughs> all all fixed. Um, but I also had, uh, then this, this totally fits in with the culture. And if anybody wants to steal this idea, you're welcome to, I want to see a fight club remake with, uh, uh, women cast as, as the, Absolutely. the main characters that would be yes. bad ass. I want to see it. Somebody, yeah. somebody do it. Who, who would you cast? Who would you cast as as the leading females? Okay, so it'd be called Bitch Club. It wouldn't be called Fight Club. It'd be called <laughs> Bitch Club. I like that name better. <laughs> I don't know why, but I do like that name better. I would uh, cast Michelle Yeoh, the Chinese kung fu like actor. Um, she was just recently in Everything Everywhere All at Once, and also in things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh yeah, yeah, Malaysian actress. Yeah. Yes, yes. And what yeah, who would, so would would she play Edward Norton or or Brad Pitt? I feel like I feel like she no, because Brad Pitt was like super hot in that film. Right. Uh I think Michelle Yeoh would just be someone that would like was in a house, you know what I mean? Oh, okay. Uh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh I you know, you want someone that's going to be like super hot to play uh Brad Pitt because he was like ridiculously ripped in that film so i i don't know i don't know um you could probably cast margot warby as something like that because you know she's she comes to mind um the person to play edward norton i feel like has to be a bit more you know muted almost in appearance um maybe you could play someone like um that girl from the hunger games maybe oh yeah jennifer lawrence Jennifer Lawrence, maybe you could do that. And then you could probably cast someone new like Zendaya or something like that to bring in the younger audience to mm. Bitch Club. Um, 
Yeah, that's what I'm struggling with right now. Like I've, I've, I used to watch movies all the time. Like, like I would watch like a movie a day and now, now my, uh, I don't know if it's my ADD or what, but now I'm more, I, I, I don't watch much. I play a game or I write a song or I write, you know, something, you know, journalistic, so I'm I'm like really behind on who the 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 top actors are now. Like I was watching um like everything I see. I mean, I've been watching Black Mirror because, you know, Netflix and, you know, the the new season of Black Mirror is out. And I'm seeing these actors and I'm like, "Oh, I've seen her and stuff next episode. Oh, I've, I've seen her and stuff, but I have no idea who these people are or their, their level of (laughs) their level of fame. So I'm just thinking like, who would I cast as Brad Pitt or Edward Norton in this, in our, our fight club remake. And I'm like, Oh, that girl from that episode of that show, I have no idea who she is or what else she's been in. So I really can't contribute anything. I'm like, Oh, uh, Uma Thurman from kill bill. She'd be awesome. Except she's old as fuck. I was just thinking, (laughs) I was just thinking about that as well, but you could cast her daughter, her daughter's in film films now. Well, and you could, you could also do what's been done now with, with like, like Harrison Ford, for example, in the new, uh, Indiana Jones movie, you, you can now create, uh, computer generated versions of these actors and, and make them look young. That's actually, that's, that's one of the things actually that, that kind of bumps me, um, when, like when I'm playing games and one of the things about the gaming culture that I absolutely love is that they start putting real life actors into these games like for for the yeah. cutscenes, and then there's some version of of their you know like they motion cap their their body to make it look like the real person but one of the things that bumps me is when they make a person look like um uh uh ellen page slash elliot page I, I i don't know what's right okay everybody get off my back about it i she when she was cast in the last of us game she was ellen page now she's elliot page okay that's fine she can she can do her thing i just don't know what's right when i'm talking about who he she was in in the last of us but the point being that they made her look a little bit different in uh in the game versus the way that she you know her her actual appearance and then when the next game came out they made her look even different so there's this weird it's it's almost like uh uncanny valley you you know what i mean when i say that right yes i do know what you mean and that's some creepy creepy shit the it is creepy the uncanny uh the uncanny valley phenomenon being Mm. being that just just for the listeners and i've brought it up on the podcast before the uncanny valley is uh um okay let's see what's a good way to to explain this you're and let's just say you're you're part of a study where you're viewing uh, uh likenesses of of human beings in like a art sort of artificial intelligence, uh, robot development sort of setting. Hey, look at this robot. Can you tell it's a robot? Yep. I can totally tell it's a robot. What about this one? Is this, oh, that's a, that one's a little bit 
a little bit more realistic, but I can still tell that it's a robot. You climb this, this, you're climbing up one side of the valley. Like you can kind of like, like view it like a graph as the robot becomes more and more lifelike. You're traveling up the side of the valley. Then the robot begins to look so realistic that it becomes alarming to the person in the study. And that's where the valley drops off. It's sort of like the uncanny valley is like, do you feel comfortable with this, with this robot likeness of a person? And it continues up and up and up until it becomes so lifelike that it then creates this aversion to human beings. They go, I can tell like, like that, that robot is so lifelike that I'm now disturbed by it. And I've heard it described yeah. this, this uncanny Valley phenomenon. I've heard described in such a way that it's, it's really creepy because it's explained as if there is part of our evolution that is being sort of woken up by these entities that appear so human, yet there's something about them that tells us to be afraid, be worried, be distrustful of this entity because on some uh, primitive level, human beings can detect that this is something to be afraid of. And that's, that's so creepy because where did that come from? Where did that part of our evolution come from to be distrustful of things that are, that appear human, but we know somewhere deep down aren't actually human. Yeah. It's, it's such a weird um, it's actually such a weird feeling to have. Uh, like it, a good example is um, the Mummy. Uh, there was like the Mummy Two, I think, movie where uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is like a giant scorpion person, and the CGI is like really weird. And it, you look at it and you go, "Okay, I can see it's supposed to be Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but I can tell that it isn't. Uh, it's uh, very odd." Yeah, I'm actually looking up right now. There was a there was a movie that came out uh, a few years ago, and uh, oh, here it was. It was Toy Story. They were showing um, they were showing screenings of Toy Story to children with different versions of the you know, computer generated characters. And I think it was, um, I think it was the Andy character that they had to rework because every time he would come on the screen, the children would be horrified and start crying. Although there was nothing scary about the character, just that it appeared too lifelike. It wasn't cartoonish enough. And it, it created this fear inside of the children that suggests that at some point in our evolution, we were meant to believe that, that these very lifelike recreations of, of human beings were something to be feared. And I don't know, I mean, have we, have we, based on what I know of not only the development of cutting edge technology, but also how it sort of makes its way into the media 
when it's, uh, you know, in its primitive stages and then we never hear about it again? Sort of tells me that, oh, okay, now, now it's been, it's been cultivated to the point where it can be put into, you know, active use. And like, I, I remember ages ago reading the story about active camouflage and now we hear nothing of active camouflage, but that doesn't, to me, that doesn't suggest that the project has been abandoned. It suggests to me that now it's been, it's been cultivated and is viable. And now we can't talk about it because we don't want our enemies to be looking out for it. Yeah, for sure. There's like a huge difference in technology, like compared to commercial stuff, which are usually done by research groups, and then they sell the patent. And then there's like military grade stuff where every now and again, there's like a uh, announcement, and then it goes quiet because they figured out something cool or something. But I know like for every every year, I hear someone has created a battery that like lasts five times longer than the one in your phone. And then you'd never hear about it again. And it's quite often because the research people will just put out a headline like that. But then once you dip, dive in deeper, like to create that battery, it's like 10 times more expensive or there's some huge defect with it. Like you can only charge it like five times before it dies or something. So there's, there's all this stuff in technology that ends up like, I don't know. It's almost like clickbait technology. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, to me, it sounds like they, the media puts the story out there and then this creates a pool of investors, but what motivation does the media have for putting this story out there to, you know, like What's the benefit? I, I mean, aside from, from readership, I know media has changed dramatically over the last 10 years, but it's almost like, why does like, like who, who is the corporate sponsor that is allowing this story to move forward? I mean, I mean, you know, print, print media is, I mean, it's irrelevant now, but there's still the, the space still holds value. I mean, you're going to, you're printing something about cutting yeah. edge technology to attract investors is, is what I think. And then once the investment is achieved, well, now we have to take the tech underground because we don't want anybody stealing our ideas. Yeah. I'd imagine that there's a bit of both where there's like some outlets will find out about something and just post it up there because they're the first to know and they want to get all the readership and all the clicks and stuff like that. And then I can imagine with some of the bigger outfits, you know, someone that finances, just for example, I'm not saying this happens, you know, don't come after me. Just for <laughs> example, let's say uh, a, like a major investor or partner of CNN. Okay. They're also a major investor or partner of a research group that researches in a bit of new technology and they find something and then CNN covers that technology to then gather more investment for that. So I can imagine both of that happens. I, I, I would be utterly amazed if that doesn't happen. 
Oh, I'm sure it does happen. And there's there's other interesting anomalies, or I mean, they're probably not even anomalies, where I remember specifically a story just, you know, recently post-pandemic, where uh, there was a story about how uh, how unpopulated Disneyland had had become, even though it's it's open for business. But what a, what a, isn't it so curious? It's so curious that there's not more people going to Disneyland that we need to write a news story about it. And then you realize, oh, Disney just paid this this media outlet to write a quote story unquote about how uh how quiet it is at disneyland these days so everybody hey come get your tickets to disneyland because the lines aren't long and there's not too many people yeah and i can imagine it was packed they just told people it was empty in the well, place. Yeah. And, and I mean, it definitely was packed after that news story. But it's like, oh, uh, uh, you know, outcome achieved. And, and then Fox News continue can continue on pretending to be a, le- a legitimate media outlet. And that's I mean, really, that's like, in my opinion, it's the source of all of our problems. And it's it's like like you said, there's ownership at CNN that is also own ownership at these other companies. So what we have fed to us through the media is just corporate narratives. It's all corporate yeah. narratives. And on on one hand, you know, like I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because I, I think that's just human beings want to give people the benefit of the doubt don't want to be i mean it's, it's bad for our psychology to go around being constantly negative and they they want to believe that we're hearing what is the most we're, we're getting the most important stories that we should really be concerned about because the media is the media and they have our best interests in mind and and that's that's what people want to believe because believing the inverse is depressing but when we we talk about women entering the workforce, I immediately wonder what role the media had in perpetuating the concept of of women persisting in the workforce in order to capitalize on women's position in the culture at the time. And now we have COVID that comes out and and every day it seems there is a new story about how, oh, we've we've completed this study and we found out that masks are, are actually useless. And then everybody piles on and goes back and, and pulls clips from Fauci and, and emails from the National Institute of Health that say, oh, look at all of this correspondence that says masks aren't really effective. But everyone in the media said, hey, you got to put your mask on because it's going to save lives. And if you don't put your mask on, then you're a terrible person. Then the vaccine rolled out and it was the same thing. Oh, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. Well, now we have these new studies. Now we have real life experience that says, uh, not safe, uh, not effective. And the the biggest thing lately has been uh, transmission. Oh, they they told all of us that 
it was going to stop the virus. The the inf- if you're vaccinated, the infection stops with you because you won't be able to transmit it because you've gotten vaccinated. Now we know that's false. And it but it doesn't matter that it was false, even though they knew it was false. They kept telling us over and over again, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. So it's created this media landscape where nobody believes anything. And 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 then yeah. it's 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 also very tribal. Like, ah, I'm 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 a liberal leftist, so I believe CNN. And you are a conservative Republican, so you only believe Fox News. But in reality, nobody should be b- really believing any of those outlets, any of the mainstream outlets, because they're all pushing a corporate agenda. And if you look at the yeah. like the ownership of MSNBC, not only is are their is their parent company NBC Universal, which is a massive global corporation that needs access to uh, uh, you know, international markets, but they also have a, a board of directors that, you know, is sits on boards at not just MSNBC and NBC universal, but also Raytheon, you know, de- uh, defense contractor and Exxon Mobil, you know, massive, uh, uh, oil conglomerate. And these realities about the culture of God, I keep hitting my microphone. <laughs> the realities of these people that sit on all of these these boards for all of these massive companies that that affects the stories that are reported by these companies. Yeah, I agree. Uh, something that I can't quite understand. I mean, everyone did it during the pandemic in terms of media outlets, is they took everything the government said on face value. And still to this day, everything that the government says, the media outlets take it on face value. They don't question it at all, really. Yeah, there's no Um, real journalism um, being done. No, no. But what's interesting is that in the UK, everything else that the government does comes under huge, heavy scrutiny from many media outlets. And in the in America, I kind of feel like there is not the same level of overall scrutiny over what government does day to day. There is a little bit of stuff on, you know, Fox will complain about Biden doing this, doing that, you know, whatever. But in the UK, it doesn't matter who's in power. It is it always feels like a rain of lead bullets that hits the government every day. They're looking at every single thing that they do. And if they if they do anything wrong, it's like we want them to resign now kind of thing. <laughs> well, and that's <clears throat> that's really the purpose of media. That That's that's the way it's supposed to be. I feel yeah. like if if we could. If like if we just had an honest media. Like like these there, there are two things that really work hand in glove big, massive, bloated federal governments and big, massive, bloated corporate media that covers for the government. And, th- and they cover for the government because all of those parent companies and, and you know, directors of the board are paying these politicians. They've contributed millions and millions to their political action committees and their, their personal campaigns and they're, they're looking for favors. So 
they don't want and 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 this is part of you know the in in america the government criticism is all it's all one-sided the corporate media yeah only criticizes the conservative elements of government while simultaneously covering for the liberal elements of government the president included and when donald trump was in office it was the reverse everything donald trump did was bad he could he could do nothing right and now that biden is in office according to the corporate media biden can do no wrong even with all of the controversy he can still yeah, do no it's wrong really, it's re- it's really funny it's like because in the uk obviously the tories are getting hammered every week but you know to be fair to 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 the media the tories keep giving them reasons to give them hell uh so to be fair it doesn't seem like the media are being overly uh, uh aggressive the conservative government right now is just our nightmare but in the same in the same way you know Keir Starmer the leader of the opposition in Labour you know I think he once yawned weirdly and that was headline news as well so you know it was like it was you know it's they both sides get an equal amount of of uh damaging you know media coverage Uh, and just to segue a little bit this recent um kerfuffle that the conservative government has had uh is possibly one of the best ones i think we've had for a while which is uh there is to some people would say an immigration problem here in the uk um and especially with asylum seekers the people that come here that are refugees from war-torn areas and they claim asylum in the uk and by our own laws we have to house them and process them and all this sort of thing and at the moment we're spending six million pounds a day um hosting these asylum seekers in hotels so every day is another six million pounds can you imagine that that's that's huge so the government's idea was to build a barge a floating barge about um let's say four or five stories high and it would house about 500 asylum seekers and it's more it's a more economical way to to hold you know that many um asylum seekers and this thing has been an absolute nightmare from the beginning. Delays, safety concerns, uh, asylum seekers claiming legal challenges to going on the barge, like saying they can't swim or other stuff like that. Um, and <laughs> well, how did you get last here? <laughs> week, I know it's like it's one of those things. It's like oh my god. So it's it. Up until this point, it's been a disaster and the media have been coming at them and the Home Office are crying because they're basically, they just, this is the nightmare that never ends, right? So finally they get the barge in a position where they can start to take asylum seekers on it, onto it. And this was last week, okay? So I think they put about 15 people, there was supposed to be 50, but like, I think 35 people managed to get out of it for some reason. And shortly after they went on, it was discovered that there was Legionnaire's disease in the water system uh, of the barge. So they oh, had no. to take them all off. They had to take them all off again. So it's just another problem with this barge. <laughs> so this one barge is like the biggest thorn in, in the side of these conservatives. And 
at the present, they've spent all this money to build a barge. I don't know how much it costs, you know, millions, right? And they're still spending millions holding them in hotels. So it's just a, a loss, loss situation right now. It's one of the funniest things. I highly recommend to check it out. Sky News and many of the outlets did a, did a story. All you need to do is just Google um, barge and Legionnaire's disease, and you'll find uh, a really good article on um, how the if they'd used the showers, they would have got like, uh, I can't remember what the disease is called that you get from Legionella bacteria. Um, but it's bad. You can, you can die from it. So yeah, there's an article from, from NBC news headline Britain's barge for asylum seekers faces new setback as Legionella bacteria found in water system. (laughs) Plans to use the Bibby Stockholm barge as accommodation for asylum seekers has been plagued by controversy and delays. I love the idea, though. Like, I I really do like that idea. And the first thing I think is, oh, all of those horrible, those, those terrible cruise ships that everyone hates because of the the class i mean it's it's really sad this is just the class of people that likes to go on cruises makes cruises targets for the aisle of of liberal leftists leftists that are constantly bemoaning white privilege but really how many old crew i mean what do they do with old cruise ships i mean don't they probably don't do this anymore but wouldn't they just take them out and sink them yeah, sink them all, or I think they get recycled now. Like all the expensive metals and stuff gets t- gets stripped off them, and then they just sink whatever's left. So you could yeah. you could just I mean, ugh, it's <laughs> I really I like the idea in theory, but in practice, it sounds dreadful. It sounds like Waterworld. Do you remember? You remember that movie? <laughs> it does sound like it. Do, I watched that recently. It does sound like Waterworld. You're right. It's the the you know the bad guys. They all lived on that on that huge oil tanker, and it on was that, just yeah. This that's right. Yeah, dystopian hellhole. That's that's what it sounds like. But I mean, yeah, the idea shouldn't be that the immigrants live there now. It should be this is where they stay. I mean, because it checks so many boxes in 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 terms of the the problems that are being created by these, you know, this, this influx of immigrants. It's, it's funny. This NBC article refers to them as asylum seekers when really they just say asylum. I mean, in, in, in America, I'm not speaking to British immigration, but the statistic I think is something like 90% of asylum claims are, are denied because they're not actually valid. I would imagine it's not far off from the asylum claims in in Britain. Have you heard any statistic to wow, support no, that? No, 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 no. We no, we 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 approve very many. There are very few, if any, people that get turned back. Well, that makes sense um, because I imagine. Uh, I mean, the war torn areas are right there in the states. Yeah. There's not a lot of war-torn areas in in Mexico and in South America. I don't know, and yeah, I don't I don't believe what the media tells me. It's way easier to immigrate to a European nation that's in the EU or in the UK. Anything that's under the European Court of Human Rights, it's it's fairly easy to claim asylum because it doesn't even have to be a war-torn area. It can it can either be uh, something like. Um, 
my government is uh, falsely accusing me of something or um, there's a threat to my life in this country. I need to move country because there's a threat to my life. There might be something to do with, you know, gang violence or something. There was a person here in the UK that was falsely imprisoned for 17 years and he's claiming asylum Mm. into the Netherlands because he's using the fact that the government here in the UK has has falsely imprisoned him and he's using that as a way to claim asylum in another country. Um, and I just want to be transparent here about this barge. This is not permanent uh, this is not permanent residency for these people. Uh, asylum seekers just have to stay segregated from the rest of society um, until they are processed as fully fledged immigrate immigrated people. And then they can go and work and live wherever they like in the UK. So this is not like a, it's just a, that's why it is a barge, right? It's just a, tran, it's just a uh, sort of transitory space that they just have to put them in until they go to court and get their papers or whatever. And then they can, then they can go off. So I think a lot of people in the UK think they're going to be living there forever, which obviously would be terrible because it looks like a prison. Yeah. Um, there's like 500 people are somehow going to fit on that barge. Um, so, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's supposed to be temporary and they've got to go somewhere. We can't just keep paying hotels. Like they have to go somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, a picture of the, the barge right now. It, it does, it does resemble a floating prison. Uh, yeah, but does, I mean, right? the, the idea in theory, like it, it, it's unfortunate that it's not working out because I feel like the idea in theory would work great for, uh, for the homeless and for, uh, asylum seekers and just any, I mean, any population that, that, as you said, needs to be segregated, you know, for processing and, uh, just, I mean, I don't know. I get, I get very, uh, very liberal, very quickly when we start talking about human rights and people being deserving of, of having a roof over their heads. And, and it's, it's just a mess because that's very communistic. Like, Oh, we should, uh, you know, we should care for these people that are, that are down on their luck. And, and generally I agree, but the problem becomes, well, these people can't bring themselves to stop doing drugs. These people can't make the right decisions to uh, establish themselves as as contributing members of society. So then it becomes like, wow, like where do we draw the line? I mean, I, I think in in Asian countries, um, I, I for I forget all the the ins and outs of the stories, but I think like in, in Japan, it's like illegal to fire people. So everybody's always got a job, you know, like it's, it's incumbent upon the management to get the production out of their people. So it should be, I think incumbent on the government. I mean, not that I want to expand government or give government any more responsibility, but there needs to be some sort of responsibility taken for getting people back on their feet. When people are claiming asylum, they need to be established in in society somehow. And I mean that's that's speaking of course to the honesty of of these people's asylum claims. And I know Africa is a mess, the Middle East is a mess, and that's where people, I mean, 
you you want to flee those countries because there's no uh, there's no real functioning government at, at least not with uh, any sort of strength. It's all just kind of uh, the the appearance of government, the the appearance of. Uh, of a justice system. And that's what's, I mean, ultimately that's, what's going to drive me to, uh, to seek asylum. And, and maybe, I don't know, I'm going to come crash on your couch. Yeah, for sure. Like if, if, uh, if you, yeah, if like there's a genuine claim of like gang violence or something, you could totally claim asylum as an American. Well, I'm going to be, and they would, I'm about to be a political, a, a political refugee. Like yeah, uh, that's another one. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like and Al Al Pacino in Scarface. <laughs> I love that film so much. Political refugee from Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. Oh, that was I. <clears throat> I should actually spend more time working on my impressions because it's a thing that I've done well. Although I have a uh, more difficult time doing impressions of actual people. Then I do like doing impressions of, uh, you know, accents, ethnic accents. And we do Mm -hmm. not live in a political climate that allows for good impressions of foreign accents. No, sir. That will get you canceled real fast. No, sir. Uh, (laughs) But man, but but no, like this, uh, this, no, this UK immigration thing is just totally messed up we have so many people on this backlog not because there's like well there are a lot of people coming to the country um but historically speaking in terms of asylum seekers it's no it's not a crazy amount more that would be like the normal and it's because our court systems are so behind and so underfunded um that we just can't get people out of these hotels and off the barges and stuff because um they're just not being processed fast enough you know each one of them has to have a hearing and they can appeal to the to the european court of human rights and all this sort of stuff so yeah i mean if i if i wanted to solve the asylum seeker problem would i spend the money on the accommodation or would i spend the money on the court system to just get the backlog down you know it's mm, yeah yeah, I know. I, I feel like a lot of that stuff is sort of uh, the government being in its own way. If if you know, like like the government being its own obstacle to the government. Yeah, yeah. It does. It does feel like that. Like, oh, we have to do all these. We have to do all these things. We have to check all of these boxes. And when you get into the process, and you see what sort of steps are being taken and how much of it is redundant and how much of it is just kind of, kind of a, a, a pointless waste of time. You realize that we could, we don't actually need to invest more money in the courts. We need to cut out the bloat. We need to get rid of the, the wasted steps. And then we can process things a lot more quickly. Yeah. But one of the weird things about, immigration to the united states is that these people are claiming they they claim asylum from el salvador and then they travel through all of these different countries where they could you know in where where they could seek like they could seek asylum in mexico but they don't they don't want to seek asylum in mexico they want to seek asylum in america so trump of course had the remain in mexico policy where if you are coming 
if you are coming from Venezuela, you can seek asylum in Mexico and, and apply to come to America. But what Joe Biden does now is they, they come to seek asylum in America. We give them gift cards and cell phones, and then we release them into the country and say, uh, make sure you don't miss their court date. And then 90% of them don't show up for their court date and they just live illegally in the United States. And it's difficult for me to take a hard stance against those people because America is a good place to come. You know, a higher yeah, standard yeah. of living, higher wages. And this is one of the things that I would like to see removed from reality. It only hurts the human race to have countries that seduce all of the American manufacturers to come, you know, establish their factories in the countries that will pay people 25 cents an hour or less and create a and create a standard of living that's below the poverty line in many of these countries while they sell these products for you know two hundred dollars a piece and it only costs them a dollar to manufacture that doesn't create that that creates these people seeking asylum in in the first place yeah of course right yeah, and it's the same story here in Europe, right? They'll get in a boat in Africa, go to Italy, travel the whole way from Italy to the UK, and they claim asylum in the UK rather than any of the... Which I think is funny because like, on the way to America, um, there's not that many great countries. Like Mexico's okay, but I wouldn't want to claim asylum there. But like, if you're going through italy then you're going through switzerland then germany then belgium then france and then getting on at calais and then going to the uk well part of I it do think <clears throat> yeah <clears throat> excuse me part part of it is is the language right like if yeah since english is is english the the world's language it's like the most popular language on the planet right um, it's not the most spoken language, but it is the most powerful one. So if you leave, if you live in Africa and you understand English, at least enough to get yourself by, then you couldn't go, you couldn't go to Italy to, you know, or, or you at least wouldn't want, I mean, I brought up seeking asylum myself. I wouldn't try to seek asylum in Canada because what the hell Canada's a mess. And I wouldn't try to seek asylum in Mexico because I don't speak Spanish, but it sounds like the UK is pretty good. So I would go, I would try to seek asylum in the UK or somewhere that spoke my language because that just makes it easier for me to integrate. So if these yeah. people in, but, but this, this doesn't hold up for the people that are immigrating to the United States from Peru, because those are all Spanish speaking nations with the exception of Brazil, which speaks Portuguese for some weird reason, but there's probably a heavy, a heavily Spanish speaking pop population there as well, because it's surrounded by Spanish speaking nations, just like, uh, you know, many people speak Spanish in the United States as well. So if you're, if you're trying to find a better life for yourself, political asylum or not, 
you know you can come to the United States where many people speak English and many people also speak Spanish. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I feel like I'm very liberal in this episode. No, no. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, uh, because liberals, I mean, like all of their ideas, like all of these ideas that, that, that liberals have safe supply for, for drug addicts and, and, you know, asylum seeking, uh, paths to, to citizenship and barges that you can crash on while you get all of your affairs in order. These are all good ideas. These are all good benevolent ideas. but they become controlled by bad people that only have their their own self-interests in mind and they're they're trying to climb the political ladder or they're trying to climb the corporate ladder so they don't want to do anything to upset any of the i mean not just the population i mean it's at, at this point it's like the population doesn't even matter like what the electorate thinks is far down the list you have to satisfy the corporate interests that are funding your campaign and then you have to do things that look good in the media but it's all there's there's people behind the scenes pulling the strings that only want more wealth and power for themselves. And that's why it, it, it's like, it doesn't matter what system of government or what economic policies you want. If it's bad, greedy, selfish people that are in charge of these systems, it's only going to end badly for the people that are trying to live under these economic systems. And that's why I'm yeah, going to become I mean, a sense. political yeah, refugee. Yeah. <laughs> well, as long as the UK stays under the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, I don't think anyone will have a li- an issue. One of the things that they're trying to do to reduce the amount of asylum seekers that they get to the UK, um, because the Tories are actively trying to reduce them, is by exiting the uh, European Court of Human Rights. Um, and that is, I don't like that, uh, because not only would um, asylum seekers not be able to to uh, use the European Court of Human Rights to appeal any decision that the UK uh, makes, but if any human rights violations happen in the UK um, from our government or from anyone here in the UK, me personally, I would not be able to appeal a UK judge's decision to the European Court of Human Rights either, um, which would supersede that decision. So it would remove the rights for me as well as a UK citizen, let alone a, an asylum seeker. So I think, uh, you know, as, as you said, there's a bit of blow going on. I think they see the ECHR as blow as, and their rules dictate certain people from certain walks of life are, are able to claim uh, asylum in a in a relatively liberal way and they see that as the bloat in order to um reduce asylum but uh i think it's a massive loss if we if we leave that well and um, this because this this kind of illustrates the uh the benevolence in in like the uh oh i don't know what you would call it in in the UK, but like the, the American sort of imperial 
concept where there's there's these human rights violations and and you know all these terrible things are happening to these people in in Syria and Iraq so we we have to go in there and save them because these people have nothing they, they there's no avenue to justice for them so we have to go in there and save them and i think that was true at one point like if you if you don't have a uh, a fair justice system where do you go for justice you 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 know a uh, a neighboring nation or the the U european uh human what, what was it called the court of human the ECHR, rights the, the european court of human rights yeah i wish the i wish the americans could get something like that could you, could you imagine if like an american court gave you a raw deal and you could appeal it to an even higher court, like the North American Court of Human Rights that covered like everything from Mexico to Canada to Alaska, the rest of the states and stuff like that. That sounds really cool. It would be, I mean, it's, it's so funny that you, that you bring it up because, uh, yeah, the, just justice in, in America over the last three or four years is an absolute travesty. And, uh, of course we're, we're at the end of our time, but, uh, big, big things are happening with justice in, in the United States. And it, it would be, um, you know, because Donald Trump has been indicted in, uh, four different States now, I think. Yeah. I think it's better if we cover like that in complete detail next week. Yeah. Like, you can just, you can just run us through like, because there's so much. Yeah, it's a it's a disaster. I mean, I mean, and and this is why I say like I am gonna seek political asylum elsewhere because it doesn't matter who you are if you fall on the side of conservatism or liberty or anything that is anti uh, government, corporate, established narrative and you have any sort of influence, then you're in for it because they're coming after Donald Trump. They're coming after his lawyers and it's all, uh, basically completely fabricated because, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're pulling these statutes from 1871 that have to do with the Ku Klux Klan and nothing even closely related to anything that Donald Trump did in in 2020 yeah I, I saw they were using the rico statute as well like what they would charge al capone with or something yeah it's well i mean and that's that's basically the boiled down crux of the problem is nothing is legitimate it's all the the most twisted mess of legal theories that won't hold any water but the 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 thing that Donald Trump really needs to be worried about is the judges and the juries in these districts. And I was thinking to myself yesterday, if you can't rely on a judge and jury to be nonpartisan, what sort of justice is there? I mean, that's no real sort of justice at all because everything is going is going to be perverted by political activism. But we will definitely get into that more next week. Final words, yeah, sir. Can't wait. 
nope, just happy to be back. Um, it was great having thank you, you back. very much to your uh, wife, by the way, on the previous episode. I really enjoyed listening to those. Oh, it was, was awful. Fantastic. I had to talk to her twice. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you don't talk normally, so you can get it out all there. It was no, it was great fun. She was a little bit self-conscious about it, but we uh, we had a good time. And the, the feedback was really good, too. And uh, it's it's been good for for us as well. Uh, so please continue to uh, to give your feedback and subscribe to the show share it on social media and uh as always don't forget to go listen to the next episode we will be back 